The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the weekend, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 461 of the Colombia Calling podcast. How did you feel about the rerun of Wade Davis's interview uh, last week? Uh, yeah, we were short on interviews, but at the same time, I think it was great to bring it back out, pull it out into the open again after two years. Things have been very timely, of course, with Mr. Wade Davis, and a lot of you tuned in for the second time and many more for the first time. So there you go. I think it was important to get perhaps one of our most notable uh, and famous interviewees back on the show i have actually talked to him in the last couple of weeks but he's he's too busy to update or you know you know bring us more information from his life at the moment but hopefully something in the future of course we were talking about his book magdalena river of memories and it's his love story to colombia of course it really is an ode to colombia from uh, wade davis there but this week's this week's episode is special in that You'll notice that I managed to geek out entirely on it as well. And this is with Camila Gonzalez Rosas. And she is, well, she's a doctor, etc. But she is the head of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Los Andes here in Bogota. And she is a parasitologist. And she will explain to us what, what is disease ecology. And we talk all about infectious and tropical diseases here in Colombia. And not least, of course, we do have to get on to the issue of COVID-19. You may be bored of it, but we cover Chagas, we cover Leishmaniasis, we cover Zika, Chikungunya, Dengue, Malaria, and of course, COVID. So it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation with someone who's really dedicated uh, her life to this this study and, and very incredible research and investigations at these centers that she works at. So we are very, very uh, honored and of course, humbled to have someone of this academic uh, profile on the show talking about infectious diseases and disease ecology in Colombia. So we will be with her in segment three. Thank you again to Mark in Toronto. Mark, who has, uh, up, uh, well, up, upgraded his, um, his uh, Patreon donation. So thank you to you there. And of course, all of you out there, if you want to support the Columbia Calling podcast, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And you can help us out for less than the cost of a Starbucks coffee just once a month. And yes, we'll be over now to our sponsors. And then on to the Columbia News Brief with Emily Hart, as always, and then back with Camila Gonzalez-Rosas talking about all these creepy crawlies and infectious diseases in Colombia. So thank you again, and don't go away. The Columbia Calling Podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. 
By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of March 13th, 2023. The second round of peace talks with guerrilla group National Liberation Army, the ELN, have been taking place in Mexico, where a final agenda has been laid out after a bilateral ceasefire was signed. The agenda is based on citizen participation, meaningful democracy and socioeconomic transformation. Cuba has been announced as the next location for negotiations which are due to start in April. Cuba was the location for the final negotiation of the peace deal with guerrilla group the FARC, but its selection is also a sign of healing diplomatic relations between Colombia and Cuba, which suffered major setbacks under the mandate of former President Iván Duque. As part of the talks, the political status of the ELN was recognised in an official government decree, a key demand of the group to differentiate them from other armed groups in the country and diminish emphasis on their links with the drug trade. Meanwhile, former commander of paramilitary group Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia, Salvatore Mancuso, is calling for recognition of armed group the Clan del Golfo as a political entity and peace talks on that basis, claiming that it's an oversimplification to see the group as just criminals or to see the ELN as a political entity, given that all groups, without exception, he said, are financed by drug trafficking. Mancuso himself was accused of directing nearly 150 massacres during his time as commander, among numerous other crimes. He made his suggestions from a prison in the USA. The director of the National Unit for Protection, Augusto Rodriguez, was attacked outside his home last week. The UNP is tasked with protecting individuals at high risk of violent attack. Since Rodriguez's arrival in office, he has reported irregularity and corruption at various levels, including UNP vehicles used to transport drugs, the provision of fake armour, and the involvement of mafia in service contracts. He says he has not ruled out the possibility that the attackers were contractors whose irregular practices he had denounced within the unit. His bodyguard was wounded in an exchange of bullets which left one of his attackers dead. Meanwhile, Colombia and Ecuador have launched a joint alert system to protect indigenous Awa communities from attacks by armed groups in the border region, in which around 30,000 members of that community live, often at high risk of murder, displacement, landmines and recruitment of minors, of whom around eight are recruited per month, according to Colombia's ombudsman. Both the ELN and FARC guerrilla dissidents, as well as other criminal groups, are active in the area, both involved in drug trafficking and illegal mining. Former officials of the Attorney General's office, from the mandate of Nestor Umberto Martinez, have been charged with crimes including fraud and destruction of evidence with the aim of obstructing the Special Peace Tribunal, known as the HEP, principally in relation to the attempted extradition of former FARC leader Jesus Santrich. It was a controversial moment in the peace process which ultimately led to Santrich abandoning the peace agreement and joining dissident troops. In fact, many consider that the Attorney General's office during that time was working against the peace agreement. The Truth Commission last year accused Martinez of planning an operation with the DEA to intentionally involve Santrich in the drug business, which would then allow his extradition. The Truth Commission called this moment a breaking point for a faction of the FARC to take up arms again, in the face of a faltering agreement and lack of faith in institutions which seemed actively to be working against it. Strikes have continued in Antioquia to protest military operations against informal mining. Demonstrators are requesting formalisation of their work and decent working conditions. Various illegal dredging machines were destroyed by the government, sparking protests and roadblocks in 12 municipalities. 
More than 20 have been injured in clashes and up to 300,000 people in the area suffered a shortage of food and medical supplies. The government said that the machines were causing environmental disaster, including contamination of rivers with mercury. Roadblocks have now mostly been lifted, but protest continues and no resolution has yet been reached. Both the Minister of Defence and the Governor of Antioquia suggested involvement by armed group the Clan del Golfo, though the group have come out in denial of the accusation. Nevertheless, after an attack on an aqueduct which left many without running water, President Gustavo Petro has openly accused the Clan del Golfo of breaking the bilateral ceasefire agreed at the end of last year in pursuit of total peace negotiations. On Wednesday, marches for International Women's Day took place across the country, with thousands on the streets of all major cities protesting ongoing femicides and violence against women in Colombia. Later in the week, a new protocol for the prevention of gender-based violence and discrimination was signed into law, covering all contractors, employees and procurement bodies of the public sector. Also this week, a law was signed to replace prison sentences for mothers who are heads of their household. It will affect around 5,000 women. The director of Colombia's police force, meanwhile, used the day to publicly share biblical values considered essential in women, including discretion, charm, modesty and reserve. Henry Sanabria's appointment was considered controversial as he opposes abortion and same-sex marriage, allegedly even persecuting LGBTQ people when he was head of police command in Cartagena. The transport superintendency has taken control of Viva Air, which may be subjected to a reorganisation process, freezing debts in order to avoid bankruptcy. It is reported that 16,000 passengers per day have been affected since it ceased operations last week. The state will now effectively decide whether or not the airline survives or goes into liquidation. The company blames the state for the crisis as it rejected an integration with Avianca last year on the grounds that that merge would create a monopoly over national routes. Major banks, including Bancolombia, Banco de Bogotá and Davivienda, have lowered their interest rates, some by up to 20%, in hopes of curbing the spate of credit card cancellations in the country caused by raised rates, which had hoped to bring inflation under control. The announcements came after Petro asked the financial system to lower rates and avoid a banking crisis due to the inability of users trapped in debt to pay their loans. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 461 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is a very special episode for me. And those of you who listen to the podcast will know that I have topics that are closer to my heart. They have topics that sort of, let's say, inspire me more. And one of those is the issue of epidemiology, not least because my wife is an epidemiologist but also tropical diseases, not least because I've suffered from many. So it means that it's a real honor to have someone of such an academic prowess as Dr. Camila Gonzalez Rosas, who is the director and associate professor at the Department of Biological Sciences at the Universidad de los Andes at downtown Bogota, and also a researcher for the Center for Investigation into Microbiology and Tropical Parasitology. So welcome on the Columbia Calling Podcast, uh, Camila. Thank you, Richard. I'm so happy to be here and so honored for your invitation. No, it's a real, no, the honor is mine <laughs> to get someone of your uh, standing here who can talk about disease ecology, who can talk about tropical diseases, their spread, the potential jump, so zoonotic transmission, and so on and so forth. But I want to start from the very beginning. How does someone become an expert in such an well a niche field or such a and in such a fascinating field because you did your studies in Bogota undergraduate then you went to Mexico and now you're back and you're kind of in charge <laughs> yeah and you know that is interesting what you're mentioning because when i started to study uh, the term this is ecology was not uh, really that popular and if you would look 
at universities, like searching for for labs working on this was not that common. And now I would say that in each university, you will have an, an expert on disease ecology. So I started uh, studying this because I, I was very passionate about public health from the biology perspective. So I, I decided very early in my career that I wanted to keep working for communities and for, for people and do applied science. And I started with venomous animals and then I moved to uh, vector-borne diseases thanks to a researcher from the National Institute of Health who practically adopted me and trained me <laughs> on that subject. And there I started to work on leishmaniasis. But then I, I went to a meeting to the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene meeting in, in Miami. And there I saw a talk uh, showing lots of maps and diseases distribution. And, and I was like very fascinated about that. I, I had... Uh, uh, I, I, I took a course on geographic information systems while, while I was working in the National Institute of Health. So I was I was like trying to connect these these passions, and so I talked to the researcher and and he suggested uh, to contact uh, the the researcher who had done these studies was Tom Peterson from University of Kansas. Uh, so I contacted him and I I told him I really like this I I would I would like to explore this like like spatial distribution and how diseases overlap and how species involved in transmission distribute and so he was the one who advised me to go to Mexico to the lab to the geographic information systems lab to do my postgraduate studies. Wow. And so, I mean, just through sort of, let's say, some emails and phone calls, that was it. And so, yeah. and now you're, you know, obviously at the Center for Investigation and, of course, based in Colombia. Uh, but I, I want to ask, but, you know, so much of the country has been off limits for so long studying uh, a spread of infectious diseases has to have been, well, you go through certain communities that you could have visited and then do the military did the military give you the rest of the information because i mean it was off limits it was uh, you were unable to do this well the true story of my life <laughs> is full of adventures many of them quite dangerous and yeah really to be honest from my undergrad thesis i was in a very very difficult zone. So uh, I would say that the advantage is that when you work with public health, doors are always open. So it's very important for the communities to have this kind of, um, of, of researchers and of workers visiting. So there's like, um, like, um, I don't know, like a system, a parallel system where you get to uh, get permits to go to these zones. And it's very important always to make local contacts and to let everyone know that you are going there. Who are you? What are you going to do? But of course, I, I have been working in very difficult zones for all of my life. And it sometimes gets very scary. But anyways, I, I, I feel that it has happened to me many times that I feel that I that this is the last time that I have to like uh, make sense of what I am doing and not risk that that much. Especially, uh, I don't like when I have have students uh, students or or assistants with me to put them in difficult situations. Mm. But uh, after a a few years, I forget about everything and I'm back to those places or to other places having the same feelings. So no, we 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 get our data ourselves. Um, in some regions where it is very hard to access all the regions, we have local uh, researchers or local contacts who do the, the, the difficult field work. And then we process the, the data or the or the samples that we collect. It's, I mean, truly fascinating to go down to these areas. Of course, you, you have local contacts. You say you get the legal 
permits, but you have to have also have the alternatively legal permits to be in these places. I was my one of my the first time I came to Colombia in 1998. I was working for an NGO and we were studying the mangroves in the Pacific. And that was, again, I was a different Colombia. And every time I, as a journalist, came in with a photographer, you can only imagine, uh, course, yeah. we would check in at the local priest's house and he would yes. say, yeah, los muchachos, they know you're here. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. That's very important because we, when we work with international researchers, Usually they they go on Google Earth and they look for very nice places with very nice forest coverage and they come to me and they say, look, we want to go there and we will spend seven nights there. And I'm like, no, that's not the way it works here. <laughs> so you cannot just land and take a car and go everywhere you want. And because, of course, it's not the way you can work in a in a country like Colombia, unfortunately. No, but I mean, I guess I don't know. I guess I would, I'd like to ask, actually, since the, you know, prior to 2016, the immediate, immediately prior to 2016, when the bilateral ceasefire was going on, and then post-2016, when the, the peace accord was kind of being carried out, was this a real, uh, like a bonanza time for research? You could get down to areas without real risk to yourself or to your students? I would say that the the places where we could go kind of change, mm. but there are still many places where you know that it's very hard to access. And I think that at some point also all the like the the reorganization of these armed uh, groups made also the process com more complex because now you don't know who will be there when when you will go to the field. So, anyways, we always do the the previous uh, like search for for the political sit uh, situation in in places where we go, and of course, we never take students to areas where there's any risk. Well, yeah, you have to do the total risk assessment for these things. I, I mean, this is always of interest to me because as a journalist, before having children, I'd go down to these places. Now I have responsibilities and, you know, I'm I, I'm very aware of my own mortality. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're more courageous than me, in truth. I think you're more <laughs> driven. Uh, or more crazy. I don't know, because I, I, had, a, I had a a son when I was at the university. So I have been doing this in spite of being a mom oh, uh, well during then. all of my life. So maybe it's... Then you're definitely more crazy. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's talk about this because a lot of your studies, uh, and I've read it, you've done Chagas and malaria and dengue and leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis is one of those diseases that I find, again, it's one of those things that I find so very fascinating. It, I have not had leishmaniasis uh, because it's it's that image of it you know that the, the fly that that bites you and then it i guess that the skin starts to disappear like a like a burn and it's so very difficult to get rid of and the drugs used are so i mean are toxic i had i had someone who had her phd on on uh her name uh, lina pinto did her phd i know her yeah i knew she's very people. nice yeah uh, so about I guess a hundred episodes ago, we were talking about that. And uh, the conclusion that I was able to draw is that leishmaniasis expanded in the context of the armed conflict because of the soldiers and the guerrillas in these groups. And I just think, things, what, like you, I, I read in your article, there's nine species of leishmaniasis in 20 types of sandfly. And the, da the data was, it said 60% of the population is at risk. And is this 60% of Colombia's population at risk or areas that you studied? No, it's the, it's the area of the country because you assume that uh, all the population that lives under certain altitude where you can find the vectors is at risk, is potentially at risk. Okay. I, and yeah. I mean that's it. So and it's present in twenty eight of thirty two departments. 
That's yes. terrifying to me. No, that's beautiful because you know that what is what is very nice about this disease is that is one of the diseases that is uh, endemic from our country. That species are endemic. You are you are not working with an imported species such as uh, in the case of dengue. Uh, both vectors are imported species. So if you want to do ecology, having local species and local transmission, like before humans were here in the continent, that's very fascinating because those species are part of our biodiversity. And we always are very proud of how biodiverse is our country. And we are also biodiverse in vectors and pathogens. See, this, well. is, this, is your, this is your background coming in. You get excited <laughs> about leishmaniasis. And, but I did not know that it was, I, I did not know that dengue is an imported, uh, yeah. uh, this, where does it come from? Well, the, the mosquitoes came from Asia and from Africa. From from ships probably carrying tires and and other um, water sources. Mm -hmm. So we have the two species of mosquitoes uh, imported in the country, and the virus as well uh, came probably in in persons who were infected. So like it's the same like you <laughs> it's the same case as chikungunya or as, as zika that you have you have humans infected coming to the to the country and if the mosquitoes are already here they can establish the transmission cycle so if you've got like this as you say like you know dengue obviously it, it reproduces in those puddles uh, still water stagnant water and so on like in the tires this is very contemporary i mean this is not a yes. long, long time ago. Is this, yes. I would. Yes. Is that sort of since the nineteen fifties, sixties, that kind of time? Yes, it's very. Is is it has been here for a for a quite well compared to the other diseases. It's a short period of time, and uh, I I don't know the dates exactly, but what I what I can tell you is that it uh, Edis albopictus came first, and then we had uh, Edis. No, I'm telling you the, the wrong Egypti. way. This Egypti was the first one. And then we had like around the 90s, Eris albopictus coming to Colombia. So it's quite recent. But anyways, we have had the spread of the of the two species and albopictus. We have found albopictus in two places where they they were not recorded. So each time we go to look for things, we find something new or something different. Now, I get the idea from the research you've done and uh, the stuff that you, you know, the data that you compile, that so much of all of these uh, species and parasites exist in the Magdalena River Valley. Everything seems to go back to there. And it makes me think, so my wife is from Barranca Bermeja. And I think of La Troco and tropical oil, which then later becomes, you know, Ecopetrol and stuff. And these these uh, Americans who came down in the 40s uh, to, uh, you know, exploit. And I've since been to the, uh, they call it the, the Cementerio de los Gringos, the cemetery of the gringos <laughs> just outside. And because they all died of yellow fever and malaria oh and dengue. And I mean, that's the heart of that swampy, uh, you know, cienegas <laughs> and rivers. So I think that so much of your research has been done around that area. And hence, when you talk about the dangerous places you went, it was pretty nasty down there for quite a long time. <laughs> yes. But you know that, um, that fortunately, we have started to work in that area quite recently. And it, it was a very nice opportunity because the when the Zika uh, epidemic started here in America. Um, a researcher from the CDC contacted me and he asked me like, are you able to go to a place where we need to sample almost all the vertebrates that are present and the mosquitoes because we want to answer the question if Zika is going to move to a sylvatic cycle. That was the question at that time. Is Zika going to behave like dengue, which uh, remained in humans and in urban settings, or is Zika going to behave as yellow fever, 
uh, who went on a sylvatic cycle in primates and now we still have transmission of yellow fever. Yeah. And so that was the question and, and we needed a place where we had uh, primates because mm. of course the, the obvious um, like host for human diseases, like the closest host is a primate. Yeah. And so there's a colleague uh, at the university. Uh, he's a colleague and a friend from a long time. He has been working for 15 years in that area. And he has a very nice uh, like project uh, trying to do some restoration, ecological restoration in, in that place. And he works with primates. So we decided to work in that area. And since he was there for a for such a long time it was quite easy uh, for us to to access that zone and to work there so luckily one of my um peers was not in that like <laughs> the scary part of the field work was not in that in that area but i but of course it's an area that has suffered lots of conflict because if you think of places like puerto berrio and and Puerto Boyacá, there are the primates around there and up to Barranca yeah. Bermeja, because I have a friend yes. who's a photographer who goes up there a bit, and and uh, jaguars and yes. and the ocelots and so on. And but I, I you've mentioned something that I find very interesting when you say, you know, would would Zika uh, become? I guess would it stay in the countryside and into primates? Could you tell us a little bit more? Did did it? go into primates and stay there or you know can we be worried should we be worried no in the end what we could see was that of course we we found some antibodies in some vertebrates against zika but we couldn't find any evidence of uh, sylvatic transmission of the virus so it is likely that the virus didn't go on a sylvatic cycle okay. so it will remain let's say an urban uh, problem yes so okay and and chicken gunya in the same in the same oh. circumstance or do, well, i mean i don't know so, i mean we don't you, care about them anymore no you put the like the the you you found the the most interesting question we are <laughs> still trying to solve because since we were looking for for viruses in general we could find many other viruses circulating in that area and by chance, uh, because it's a different group of viruses, we were only working with viruses that uh, belong to the group of, of the Zika virus, but by chance we found another uh, virus that was um, encephalitis, an encephalitis virus, and this virus belonged to the same family as uh, chikungunya. So by chance, we started to look at sequence, at viral sequences, and we found evidence of, well, the, the encephalitis virus was very spread and maybe it was an, like an outbreak ongoing during that time. But also we find we found a couple of mosquitoes that were probably with chikungunya, but in the end we tried to do everything in our hands to sequence those viruses. And last week we decided that we, we will work on the results just saying that maybe it will be chikungunya because we didn't have enough sample to keep working and to keep trying to to be sure that it was chikungunya so as as a, you know as a a scientist of such high ranking you know academic uh, achievement and respect it must absolutely destroy you to say maybe <laughs> <laughs> No, but you know that science is built uh, on uncertainty. We are never certain of something. You can be certain of something today, and then tomorrow another group discovers another thing that puts your research down. So, no, I'm not. I'm not that disappointed. But okay. uh, of course, the the other side would be that if we could have those results, like if we could confirm that chikungunya was an asylvatic site, that would be like absolutely amazing yeah. so what we are used to the maybes we are not used to the certainty but we want to have certainties for for some things well, I that are very interesting you're already going through your diary looking at a time 
to find and to pursue this next, uh, you know, this next investigation into chikungunya because it's there. It's not going anywhere. I'm pretty sure of that. Let's, let's go on. And uh, will you explain to my listeners exactly what Chagas disease is and how how one gets it? <laughs> okay. Yes. Chagas disease is uh, produced by a parasite that is called Trypanosoma cruzi, and this parasite is transmitted by uh, insects that belong to a group that is called triatomine vectors. So these insects are very different from mosquitoes or flies, are larger in size. Uh, their development is also different. And in Colombia, they are very associated to palm trees, silvaric and, and also cultivated palm trees. So, so usually the way you get Chagas disease is because these insects bite you at night and what is very interesting is that they don't have the parasite in their in their saliva like all the other uh, diseases but they have it in their feces so as they feed they engorge and then they defecate and they leave you the parasite in their feces and the the bite when the the insect leaves the bite is so stinging that you start to scratch and that way you put the parasite into the injury made by the insect and that way uh, the parasite enters your skin. So that's like the main transmission route, but there are new transmission routes that are being studied now. And the most important is the oral infection. And that means that you can have food uh, some, some studies have shown that guava juice or guacamole were sources of infection. So the insect either can uh, defecate in, in the food or during the preparation, there's an insect in there and by accident, you don't, you don't see it and you just smash it in the food. And if you get the, the parasite by the oral way, well, feeding uh, on contaminated uh, food, the reaction is more um, aggressive and the symptoms come more rapidly. So the, the outcome of the diseases is, is like worst if you get uh, Chagas by oral transmission. Because it's not cutaneous. I mean, if it's, we, we, I mean, it, it strikes me as, you know, the, the perfect way you get bitten, it's itchy, you scratch it. I mean, talk about perfect evolution. Yeah. But that, to get it orally. Um, <laughs> I love guacamole. I love avocado. <laughs> and I also like guava juice. And I spend a lot of time in the Magdalena River Valley because I've got my businesses in Montpós and we're always eating uh, both of those. And now I'm, now I'm questioning my sanity because <laughs> I, am, I, am a, I am the perfect host for every tropical disease, believe me. And I can believe it, you know, you, you consume whatever the, the you know the feces can uh, being carried and of course it's inside you of course it's going to be more aggressive and more yes. so uh, fever i imagine high fevers probably diarrhea probably uh, vomiting and and it goes to the to the gut so you will have very bad inflammation and well symptoms are quite aggressive so people usually go to the hospital immediately but it is it is unlikely to get i mean you you have been lucky to get <laughs> that many diseases because it's really unlikely to get those so and it's not right to to like condemn some kinds of food <laughs> but what you would need to do is like to look at the place where you are and if you if you know there are these bugs like be extra cautious and of course there are regions where where you can find these bugs very easily so that's like the way to go one of the one of the things you said is that they are very related to the palm uh and that, that is i immediately think of the you know the the, the palm cultivations I think there are a lot, obviously, in Cesar, uh, Norte Santander, Santander, all of that area, Morrison, uh, up around there. And, of course, in Guaviare, in places where they've been cutting down all the forests for palm plantations. 
So obviously your investigations have found there to be a, an increase in Chagas and other illnesses around that. We have seen that the insects can colonize these palms and that they are infected and that infection rates are high because for these insects, infection rates are, rates are quite high. Uh, but uh, what, what is very like shocking is that somehow I have many friends or even um, family who are involved in this business and they don't want to talk about this with me. It's like they they prefer to ignore the problem than to do something about it. And what I used to say, they, they say, no, but you work with diseases. So like you are not that popular among us. No, if you work on biodiversity, we want you to come and see and and show how biodiverse this um, ecosystem is. But if, if you work on diseases, you are like a threat, I don't know. But what I say is that this is the situation. We cannot pretend that it is not happening. We have oil palm plantations and we have Chagas disease. So uh, we should work together to find solutions and of course to, to try to make the best of this and not just, um, pretend that it, this is not happening because it, it is happening. Is Chagas imported as well? No, okay, Chagas so is also... So it's uh, not a beautiful biodiversity uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's really, really, really fascinating what you say, you know, your family, those of you that... I have extended family as well here who are involved, you know, and they want to get further involved. And now I'm going to tell them this. So they will be... <laughs> I'm already, you know, known as problematic in these issues because at the end, it, this is an increase due to a loss of endemic uh, biodiversity because, it, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of episodes on this, uh, how extensive cattle farming, palm cultivations, uh uh, climate change, of course, but uh, illegal mining, legal mining, are leading to this elimination of what was originally there and has given, well, has has permitted these these things like chagas to to uh, uh, become normal as opposed to uh, something extraordinary. What what I mean, I've read it in your articles, but what what is your feeling on this as well? Well, I, I, I was going to tell you exactly about that, that all of these diseases are part of that group that are called neglected tropical diseases. And it has also, uh, it's also related to what you were saying before about the the treatment for leishmaniasis. So for us, it's very frustrating that as scientists, we we could do more if we could have the, the necessary funding. And in the case of, of Palm, what I think is, if this is such a good business, why not putting some money into this kind of research and we could find solutions together? And of course, uh, in this way, we can like have the best of the two worlds. If you put money into research for, for well, basic science, but also for uh, diagnostic alternatives or treatment alternatives, this is something that is very uh unfunded or poorly funded here in Colombia so of course this is like getting worse we are having more pathogens coming out we are having more diseases uh, spreading and I, I used to say that of course uh, vector-borne diseases won't disappear with all the changes that we are doing they they will move to our houses or close to our houses so as we have as we can see with dengue and with Zika and chikungunya, those mosquitoes are like our pets. We are breeding them. We are keeping their their places. And so it's like our responsibility also to find solutions. Looking after our families of infectious diseases. Now, there were some terminologies there, uh, as you said, neglected tropical diseases. But I, I was also interested in sort of new emerging diseases and re-emerging infectious diseases uh, a re-emerging one would be an increase of of dengue or is that a new emerging one i don't know how you establish what is what 
you from from the health uh, languages we use is like is is different from the from the language we use in biology because you know that when when you say an endemic disease it doesn't make much sense from the biology perspective because an endemic species is one that you only find in one place yeah. but what we refer to with diseases is endemic is a disease that you expect to have um a certain threshold of transmission every year like okay. it's it's expected for us to have this many number of of cases and when when i think of a re-emerging disease is probably one that was controlled or was under that threshold for a long period of time and you're seeing an increase like it's coming back and it's having an increase of of cases uh, above that threshold and the the new pathogens are the ones that we still don't know that they are there Re-emerging are things things that we know there are there, but um, are increasing in numbers. So that's the difference. Well, then that that brings me that because again, I read on your on one of your articles, it says that you know malaria was targeted for elimination worldwide, I suppose, in 2030, but around 2016, nine countries in Latin America reported its increase. Uh, you know, again, it's the pervasive transformation of natural areas, agriculture, cattle ranches, deforestation. So would that be a re-emerging uh, disease, yes. malaria? And you know that, that the story for malaria is very interesting because we were doing some research in, in the department of Cordoba. And, and I, I wanted, like, I will make a parenthesis to something that you were saying from the beginning, like I work in many diseases. And that's also something that is quite uh, different from the way uh, these diseases were studied before, because uh, it was very com common to have a specialist in each disease. And when they would go to the field, they were just looking for that disease. Yeah. With this approach of disease ecology, we go to the field and try to find everything together, like everything is there so why not looking at everything and so this project that that i was mentioning was aiming at um studying the multiple diseases chagas leish malaria and and dengue in the this department um and we started to to work with malaria and we started to get the results we started to see that we were high, having higher pr prevalence of plasmodium uh, vivax no, Plasmodium falciparum. Huh. And what was what was common in Colombia before that was that the prevalence of Plasmodium fal uh, falciparum was lower than Vivax, and Vivax was higher, like 80% uh, Vivax and just 20% falciparum. And we started to see that we were having samples with lots of falciparum positives. And of course, my first reaction was, we did everything wrong. Yeah. We are getting the bad results. So we keep trying because this was very weird. We were like seeing different vectors being the most abundant, the parasite that we were not expecting being the most abundant. And so while we were working on this, it, it coincides exactly with that time where the epidemiology of malaria was changing. So it was very surprising when we started like to write the, the article to see like, my God, we're like seeing in real time how this thing is changing and our data reflected what was happening. The proportions uh, of parasites and vectors were changing. And of course, are, those are related to environmental changes. And of course, Cordoba being a huge agricultural department as well. But of course, it's, it is absolutely massive. And it's not just the agriculture and so on. There. But I, So the falciparum is not the one I have. I have Vivax. Uh, but the falciparum is this, the one that's cerebral. Yes. Uh, and I, you know, mistakenly until today, believe that falciparum was really not found in in South America very much. I thought it was more in Africa. So what do we attribute this change to, as you said, like the, okay, the agriculture and so on, but when, how? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, that that's an imported species. Mm. That That's an imported species. And it's very 
common in Africa, of course, yeah. is the is the most prevalent parasite in Africa. But now in Colombia, you have like 50-50, 50, 50, 50 really? falciparum, 50 bivaxia. And it, I mean, I assume it's more dangerous for a human. Yes, because uh, falciparum is the one who can lead to cerebral mal malaria. Yeah. So I do know, I mean, a family friend has died of that in Africa. So, <laughs> yeah. and then we do, there are, actually, before I get into another serious topic, it's all serious, but I want to ask you, you've been to all these places. How many of the diseases have you had? None. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. I usually get a bacterial infection and the only the only parasite I I, I had was uh, amoebas, ah, like entamoeba. But yeah, but it my students—that's the same question my students ask. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you do that? And well, I'm I'm very cautious and I'm very obsessed with wearing um, protection. But I must confess that uh, my my brain doesn't understand that. Uh, I go to the same places, and when I go on a field work trip, I get all the precautions. But I, when I get on holidays, I forget about. That. <laughs> so uh, it's confusing. But anyways, uh, I, I've been lucky, I guess. But I think you know, with the kind of studies that you do, you're never on holiday. You're always, especially if you're going to somewhere warm, you know, somewhere low level. You're always thinking about what could be or what there's this now my friend who's in the military who was in the special forces for a long time he never got any of these diseases because he wore gloves he put on he, he spent money to ensure and all of his friends or colleagues who didn't they were the ones who got these things so uh it's it's truly a you know you are obviously you are you care for yourself very much when you're going to these places uh, because you are at higher risk, of course you are, because you're going in and out. I wanted to ask because, you know, obviously we've been living through a pandemic, and uh, COVID has erased uh, the what would you say the public discourse about any other disease. It must be really frustrating for you because. I imagine that uh, cases of malaria and dengue, leishmaniasis, chagas probably are increasing because we're not paying attention to them. Uh, have you found that to be the case? Because, you know, COVID pandemic essentially erased our lives before the pandemic. Uh, what, what has been the, you know, the, the fallout for, for your field? Well, of course, I also started to work on COVID because since my lab um, had experience in virus detection, mm -hmm. uh, I think that a very interesting and, and nice thing happened here and that was that the universities as soon as the pandemic started the universities put their research uh, like to support the diagnostic capacity in the country so that was something that for me was very positive so the national institute of health um, certified some labs uh, around the country to support the, the diagnosis and Universidad de los Andes did a very uh, big contribution on that. And so of course we started to get funds to do COVID research. So that that was like what I, I would say most of the groups working on tropical diseases were doing at the time. Okay. But what is very nice also is that some of these re researches can be applied to our uh, to the diseases that we had that, that we used to work before the pandemic. So for example, uh, we were working on a project um, aiming at developing a diagnostic uh, portable tool to remote locations for COVID. But then we started to apply that to dengue, Zika, chikungunya, and leishmaniasis. So now we are using that technology to try to improve our uh, diagnostic capacity for our other diseases. So that's the, the the bright side of this. But of course, I guess that we we had uh, some on, on the report. Yeah. And I guess that something very interesting uh, happened with, with those uh, urban viral diseases such as Zika and Dengue, because the next uh, Zika epidemic was expected to happen in, in 2020. 
all the all the modeling, the epidemiological modeling that was done when the the first sick uh, epidemic uh, was happening here in America. All the models were predicting that around 2020 we would have the second wave, oh. and since everyone was locked and like there was no movement it is likely that it it didn't happen it's it could be one of the reasons why it didn't happen so we know that movement uh, people movement is one of the main drivers for those urban diseases mm-hmm. and having everyone like in lockdown maybe positively affected transmission but of course i guess that we will have under reports for all the other diseases for example malaria it's likely that we, we were having malaria cases, but they were being underreported. So when can we expect the next uh, outbreak of Zika then? We don't know. <laughs> okay, please. We are waiting We are waiting for the cases to, I don't want, I don't to start rising. Either. Um, <laughs> and then, okay, I have to ask because COVID, of course, you know, people behave as if it's gone away, but of course it hasn't. It's not going anywhere. You know, that's, that's the reality. But of course, there's all this chatter about uh, it starting in that market in Wuhan, jumping from uh, bats or whatever it is, live animals to humans. And you do a lot of story, you do a lot of info, uh, investigation into the zoonotic transmission. That's where we talk about, you know, a disease jumping from an animal to a human. What? Tell me about it because it's you know I do we did COVID come that way? <laughs> I don't know if you can answer that, but but <laughs> no, what, but yes, of course there is evidence that COVID was had zoonotic origin. I mean, if if he, the alternative is that it was producing a lab, no, it it was a pathogen that was circulating and that it came out like for us, it's quite obvious that that that's a very likely um, like like uh, answer for for this virus for many people maybe zoonosis and producing a lab is uh, at the same level of of uh, absurdity but <laughs> zoonotic transmission is real and it, and it happens and other are there then transmissions of that type that could take place here in colombia as well i mean have you found parasites or or so on or diseases within i don't know monkeys that that there's a primates there's a fear that they might jump to humans uh we we haven't done like such type of of works because uh usually what they do when they are finding the next pathogen x is that you need to go one and look for all the viruses that are present in those uh vertebrates so we we don't do that we don't find like or we don't look for pathogen x but we try to see how the virus we know are behaving and and something that was very nice or or i don't know it, it was for me like a rational decision was that after covid and the the calls that we are seeing for funding this year they are trying to avoid anything related with covid we we put mm, mm, too many funds for COVID and it was good, but now it's time to move yeah. uh, forward. And so ne- now there's a, a list of diseases that are prioritized for for funding and are viruses that are there or or, or bacteria that are there, and and we need to understand how they are behaving. But w- one of the findings that we had that was very interesting uh, regarding your question was that. Uh, one of my students who was working on primate malaria in that Magdalena region, um, she was uh, looking at, at malaria parasites in, in primates, and there's a non-invasive way of sampling where you can get feces of the primates, and there you can find the parasite. So you don't need to dart the, the primate and, and get blood. And in that uh, work, which was also published a couple of years ago, she found evidence of falciparum infecting these uh, primates. And that's very surprising because you don't expect to have that parasite in primates, but you expect that parasite to be only in humans. And so this implies that 
primates are getting infected from infected humans. So, exactly. So, so for zoonotic transmission, we are always thinking like uh, sylvatic animals are like the the risk for us humans that if we look the other way is also likely. So it's a, a very important argument also for conservation that we need to see the whole picture and we don't need to see that just happening one way. That's a, it's like a like a biological way of saying decolonizing our thought <laughs> process. <laughs> if I'm thinking of the humanities there, but it there there's a you have to undo everything that you've learned in that respect that that we are the danger to them as opposed I mean like parasites and so on and viral and as opposed to them to us, which is the way we've been entirely brought up. Uh, yes. Wow. I honestly, we could talk for hours. I am, I am just thrilled with this conversation, and I know that my listeners are, you know, they're going to probably be tired of me for, you know, there's, there's some hero <laughs> worship going on here because it's really fascinating what you are talking about, and your knowledge is so broad. That's the thing. It's not, you know, you're not just. It's not just Chagas, it's malaria, it's Zika, it's chikungunya, it's dengue, it's leishmaniasis. And then beyond it, you're talking about COVID. You know, you've, you've, as we'd say, you know, you've appropriated this knowledge about all of them. So let, can I just say thank you so much for your time on this rainy Bogota day. It took us five attempts to get a good internet, uh, <laughs> uh, good internet connection between Bogota to Bogota. <laughs> so, uh, Camila Gonzalez uh, Rosas, thank you so much for sharing so unselfishly your knowledge. No, Richard, I'm so happy. This is one of the things I very like, very enjoy, and I really like to talk about what I am passionate about and. Hopefully, this knowledge will uh, like cause some emotions to some people, and uh, we will we we can take this group of diseases out of the neglect. So I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Uh, well, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, there is no further pandemic to suffer. But if there is something, <laughs> or if there, if you get a, a a model together that says the next Zika outbreak will be this, get in touch and we'll warn okay. everyone. You know, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, we'll do. Thank you. Well, this has been episode 461, and I've been talking to Dr. Uh, Camila Gonzalez Rosas, who's the director and associate professor of the department of Biological Sciences at the Universidad de los Andes, that's downtown Bogota. And she's also the researcher, a researcher for the Center for Investigation into Microbiology and Tropical Parasitology. We've been discussing disease ecology, chikungunya, Zika, COVID, Chagas, malaria, dengue, leishmaniasis, and so much more. I, I think it's been a phenomenal episode as every week, but I really, really have enjoyed this one as well. And so we will be back next week with further conversations with people talking something to do with Colombia. Now we'll go over to our sponsors, but thank you again to everyone for listening. It's been a great episode and please continue to tune in, continue to share the podcast. And if you're feeling generous, check out www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And for less than the cost of a coffee in Starbucks, you can sponsor us a little bit. So thank you again, everyone. And bye-bye for this week. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017.
By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.